Cuff Radio is about to begin. Everybody loves a hero. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Welcome to Real Cup Radio. And I'm excited tonight because we got director and a screenwriter, Richard Rush. Richard, thank you for coming on. I want to thank you first for serving. And you said you were in the Air Force. One thing I have to say is there needs to be more respect and more done for a lot of these veterans out there. You know, I just took my kids to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Yeah. And I just took them on a tour of the USS Alabama. You realize what the they went through. You know, I, I served in the Army, but I never had to see... The war ended like five days before we were supposed to actually be shipped anywhere. Good. I was telling you that Chuck Bell, mm-hmm. for those that don't know, is a really good stuntman, especially with, with the horses. If you just go to YouTube, you can see a lot of his his work is on there. But he was the best, the best. But Chuck really, really bragged on you. You know, he said... This is the smartest director you're ever going to meet. You know, he said you're like a walking encyclopedia and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, Chuck, if he's if he's that good, because uh, I've been trying to talk Chuck into doing a movie. It's one thing to have a career. It's another thing to mentor somebody to carry on your legacy. Right. And so I, I said, what about Richard? He said, oh, no, we're going to get you, Richard doing another movie and we're going to get Chuck doing another movie too, because I can tell he's ready to do something. Good. Yeah. He, he's ready to do something. You know, he's also a very fine director. Uh, yes. Yes. I, I saw some of the work and stuff he did. Love some of the stuff he did. Um, as he, he said, a second director in the stunt man. Right. And, well, by the way, for the listening audience that doesn't know, you did the stunt man. You did Freebie and the Bean. You did the Color of Night. You did Getting Straight. You also did the Hell's Angel movies when they first came out, and those were real Hell's Angel. That wasn't a bunch of actors. Those were real, the real Hell's Angel motorcycle guys that everybody was so scared of. Right. What was that like? Well, a producer came up to me and said, Nick, I got a hundred thousand bucks and a contract with the real Hell's Angels to make a movie. Will you do it? And I said, no. <laughs> there had only been one attempt at that point at doing a motorcycle gang picture. And the reports were that the gang beat up the actors and urinated on the equipment. So it didn't seem like an ideal working relationship. But as I continued to think about it and realized that the mortgage was due, I said, yes. <laughs> Came back and said, yes. And I'm very glad I made that movie because I think it was the beginning of my style. It was the first time I had had an almost religious respect for the written word. Until that point, it was about my fourth movie. I had been shooting screenplays. This time, I shot a movie. The screenplay was something, uh, it's a guide that was just there to help. And so I deviated from it quite often, finally got back to it in the shooting, and a cheer would go up from the crew and cast when we finally worked our way back into the story. But it was at the beginning of my personal style. Now, your first movie, let's talk about that one again. It was called okay. Too Soon to Love. Right. It, it was it was written basically for teenagers, and it was about waiting, um, you know, on, on having sex, and it was talking about the abortion and all that. It also had Jack Nicholson in it. Right. Playing a minor role. And I think that was... 
as, as I, if I read correctly, that was Jack Nicholson's second movie, and he did two more after that. With That's right. We did three pictures together. I love Jack. Really a brilliant actor and a major force in the culture in a way. His personal style has become so widely imitated. I think we all grow up looking at and learning from actors how to be, how to open a door for a lady, how to uh, smoke a cigarette, how to shake hands, so on. And Jack was one of the most influential actors I've ever seen on the screen. Yeah. And I like what you said about his grin. The, the shit-eating grin. The one yeah. that says... I apologize in advance. I'm not serious. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, over the years, it, you, you look at a lot of his movies, you do see that grin. You know, I mean, it, that's like a, an icon type thing for him. Yeah, exactly. He, he needs yeah. to have a big old T-shirt made with a big smile like that on there. Exactly. Two Sons to Love. I wrote, produced, and directed it in 1960. My first movie, a low-budget, black-and-white, teenage exploitation picture, cost me 50000 bucks, and I sold it to Universal Pictures for 250000 So the financer was very happy, 500% return on his investment. And the critics were sort of happy. It was the time of the Nobel Vogue, the French new wave of brilliant young directors, and a couple of the critics decided that this was the first of the American new wave. It's flattering and maybe prophetic, hopefully. Definitely prophetic. From that time forward, I could earn a living by directing movies, which was a lifelong ambition come true. So it was certainly a landmark for me. Well, so we talked about you were one of the first in the UCLA film school in the first class. Right, first class. was in bungalows and with no equipment. <laughs> so it was kind oh. of, of a shabby first year. They'd become... Marvelous now. They're like a major studio. Uh, oh, yeah, I bet. I bet nowadays. Yeah, but um, very, very unequipped in those days. They had a wonderful theater department, a very well-established theater department, and I learned an awful lot there about directing and writing. Uh, so it, was, it worked out well for me, actually. You worked in a sound studio, and you mm -hmm. worked as a photographer, and then you worked in an advertising agency. And I was telling you, it just amazes me because you always see the hand of God moving on people. And all <laughs> those things, all those things kind of fit right into, you know, where your career went. All part of the process of making movies. As a matter of fact, one of my proudest times, you know, when you finish a movie, you go for the final mix. And the biggest and best stage, mixing stage in town is... The Ed Warner Brothers Studio One is like the biggest console, and they had the most famous engineering crew. They would win the awards every year, you know, the Academy Awards. And I was so proud of being their favorite director because I had worked as a sound engineer for many years. So you're right, certainly the stuff adds up when you need it. And I was telling you about the microwave generation. Well, I, I had you. I wanted you to explain the time cut to the so, people listening. Okay. It's sort of a pet of mine in the sense that I'm very interested in the syntax of cinema, the language of film. There is a specific language that we have developed in making movies, and we've taught it to the audience. It's like going to a language school. They've learned how to see films by what we've taught them to see. It's the director's job to place the camera wherever he thinks the audience is going to want to see that scene from. What's the best vantage point? They're actually in the, in the 
you do this example, probably the most popular shot in the world is the big close-up uh, conversation between you and I. We'll cut back and forth between our close-ups, some speaking, some listening, and develop the conversation. The audience will be consciously unaware that they're watching close-ups. They're listening to the reality and watching the reality of our conversation. And yet, if you stop to analyze it, there's no place you can put the camera to see that conversation. It's a series of cuts. One looking at you, trying to come around, looking at me. And yours, you're looking to the left of the lens. And mine, I'm looking to the right of the lens. That way, we're looking at each other. The audience has been taught to accept that. With a lot of refinement, I have found and occasionally tell the secret to directors who I like, the closer you look to the lens, to within like a half inch of it, the more intimate the shot becomes. And if you want a deeply intimate shot where you read the emotions out loud on the screen in your face, I'll have you look within a quarter of an inch of the lens, and that's what will happen. Okay, that's the syntax of cinema. We've also taught the audience, as part of that syntax, to accept the time cut. Example, I arrive at a Las Vegas hotel, walk up to the front door, next cut, my fingers pushing the elevator button, next cut, I'm exiting the elevator and the door's closing behind me, next cut, I'm turning the knob to the door on room 32 and entering. I've done a series of time cuts. The audience, if they're done well, doesn't realize they missed a thing. What happened in the elevator? We disregard that. What happens in the hallway? If it was important to your story, I would have shown that. But because those time cuts got you quickly to the hotel room, the audience accepts it as part of the storytelling and doesn't feel like missing thing. That's the art of the time cut in the syntax of cinema. My own major contribution, I feel the directors should constantly work to expand the syntax to improve it. I added a new area called the, uh, give me a second, it's actually part of the system I call critical focus, but the most visible and, from the, uh, and recognizable part of it is the, I've suddenly gone blank. <laughs> That's all right. Um, we'll come back to it. Okay. It's where you use the long end of a zoom lens up in the higher numbers and change the focus between two objects, which are different distances from the lens. And as you change the focus, one of the objects appears and the other object disappears, change back, and that object disappears, and the first object appears again. So it's kind of going in and out um, as you're switching. Yeah. and I found that the relationship between the two objects is poetically much closer than cutting from one to the other or dissolving from one to the other. It becomes a very intimate way of telling a story. Now, what I noticed with the time cuts is that they seem to be a little overused, and if, if they don't back off on that, they're going to end up cutting the movie where no one understands it. But mostly it's not the overuse, it's the bad use. Gotcha, the bad to, use. It has to be well done. You have to feel that the action is continuous as it's happening. Everything must continue moving in one direction. If you start from left to right, you should continue from left to right, right through the entire series of time cuts. Oh, and of course, what I was referring to, your audience before, your, or your audience already knows the name of. It's the infamous Rex Focus. Intimate, relaxed focus. Relaxed focus. And it's something I invented one summer. Somebody had given me a 8-millimeter Bowie camera with a 10-to-1 zoom on it, which acts very much like a 10-to-1 zoom on a 35-millimeter camera. I'm playing around the pool that summer, 
I discovered this relationship between objects which takes place with the rack boat. And I asked my cameraman if he thought we could handle that 35 millimeter. So we made some tests and did it on our next picture. And it's become an industry standard, a well-used industry standard. Tell me about uh, working with Peter O'Toole. Greatest thing that ever happened to me. He's my favorite actor. The best film acting I've ever seen on film was Peter and Beckett. And in the dream come true department, imagine having your favorite actor in the world play the best role you have ever written, that of uh, Eli Cross and the stuntman. It was really a dream come true. I think his work defines the outer limits of the art of acting. And as a buddy on a picture, he's more than an actor or a friend. He's a really partner in the making of the film. He's with you 100%. Yeah, for a director, that's a great thing to have because a lot of these um, actors are very hard to work with. That's quite true. Yeah. Most of them aren't. Most of them are good. Occasionally, you'll get a tough one. And it's really hard. If you're an actor's director and you're trying so much to create a world that he's comfortable working in and everything you're doing is slanted toward his performance. Favors, it's favored over everything. More important than story, more important than style. To me, it's performance. Now, as a, as a director, you were never you were never what you would call a yes man. You you always had your own ideas and uh, which <laughs> right. Well, that's part of the secret of making teenage exploitation pictures. Teenagers are rebels. As a teenager, I was a rebel. I've never gotten over it. Therefore, I'm ideally suited to shooting that kind of material. Let's go back and tell me about your project that you uh, that we're going to get Chuck to come in and help film with, and we're going to do it. All right. It's called The Fat Lady. And the Fat Lady is actually an airplane, a true-to-life airplane. It really existed. And it was the airplane, the military transport. It was shot down over Nicaragua and started the Iran-Contra scandal, which almost dethroned the president. I start to picture out with that same plane, which it very well could have been, probably wasn't, but these are planes used during the Vietnam War heavily. And I started out with this being the last flight out of Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War. And there's a deep relationship between a picture I once wrote the screenplay for called Air America and the Fat Lady, because Air America was about the biggest airline in the world, totally owned and operated by the U.S. government, more planes and pilots than all the rest combined. And their work consisted mostly of dirty tricks. They would drop counterfeit money over an enemy country to this, to, uh, uh, make the economy go bad. Great quantity of counterfeit money. They would drop, this and they'll kill you. They, will dro- they used to drop oversized rubbers, oversized condoms over the enemy to make them think that the Americans had much larger genitalia and therefore so bigger and tougher. This is how wars are fought. They used to make napalm in the women, women's bathroom out of uh, laundry soap and had their own napalm drops over native territory. And the same guys who ran Air America later on after the Vietnam War, President Reagan had a pet 
project. He disliked the socialist government that had come in to Nicaragua. He didn't want any hint of communism in the Western Hemisphere. There was a group of rebels trying to overthrow the Nicaraguan government called the Contras. Contras were a revolutionary group. The Congress said no, he could not help them because the Nicaraguan government was a duly elected government by the people. And he didn't has the right to kick sides and interfere. Well, he couldn't keep his hands up, and he found ways to get arms to the Contras. And one of the ways was he made a deal with the Median dope cartel. Their airplanes filled with Stinger missiles would land in Nicaragua, deliver the missiles to the Contras, and then get loaded up with dope for a clear return to the United States. So the government, in a way, had gone into the dope business while they were publicly waging a war on drugs. Wow. And then when that lady was shot down over Nicaragua, they discovered that they were carrying missiles to the Contras, and the whole secret came out. So it's a picture very much like my other films, an action comedy. Action comedy is what I generally do. But this one plays against thriller, a political thriller, and becomes a fascinating action comedy political thriller. And I think it's going to work very well. If we give her, get around to make it. And if my wife, if my wife was wrong when she said, you were not going to last a day at the studio, <laughs> because I have a problem walking now. She's completely wrong, and we're going to get you walking, and we're going to get Chuck Boy back working, doing what he does best. So That would be good, because the world could use Chuck. And you, too. <laughs> Speaking of that, before we go, i, I got to pray over your health. Do you mind? No, no. Well, thank you, Lord, so much. And I, I praise you for these interviews, and I praise you for friends like Chuck and friends like Richard. And, Lord, I just ask you, just touch him. Touch Richard. And we're going to get this health back, and he's going to produce a fantastic movie. And I, I also ask for another, not just another 10 years, but another fantastic 10 years, Lord. And only you can do that. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray it. Well, I want to thank you so much, Richard, for coming on. And, uh, Amen, and thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking. And, and if you ever need a repeat performance, don't hesitate to call. All right. And we'll talk real soon. Good. That's a wrap. Good.